From the United Nations in Bonn, I am Leonie Beck. And I'm Monja Sovagia. And we are the hosts of Inside UN Bonn, your podcast about the people and stories behind the United Nations in Bonn. Today we are talking to Billy Offland, a 23-year-old graduate of sustainability and environmental management at the University of Leeds. One day, while he was at the library, Billy came across the IPIS Global Assessment Report, the Intergovernmental Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, which is abbreviated to IPIS, is headquartered on the UN Bonn campus. IPIS released the Global Assessment Report in 2019. It took three years to compile and was carried out by about 150 experts around the world. The report looked into trends of the natural world and found that nature is deteriorating globally and that the goals for conserving nature cannot be met by the current trajectories. After reading the report, Billy was inspired to take action and decided to go on a journey around the world to meet as many conservationists as possible. He set off on his trip in 2019 and managed to travel to 40 countries over eight months. When COVID-19 hit, he had to take a break and return home, but he is now back on the road and continuing his conservation journey. Hi, Billy. How are you today? Where are you joining us from? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on, firstly. Um, I'm currently in Zimbabwe, just crossed over the border from Zambia to Zimbabwe this morning and just hanging out at my hostel. Back in 2019, everything started with you reading the IPBES Global Assessment Report at the University of Leeds Library. Can you tell us what went through your mind when you read it? And what specifically was it that shocked you about the report? Yeah, that was quite a big moment, actually, because I'd been studying sustainability and environmental management at the university for two years. So it wasn't so much that it all came as a shock to me what I read in there. But I think at that point when it was everywhere, it was all over the headlines, wherever you looked on the Internet, it was everywhere. And that's a big shout out to the ITBIS communications team for making that happen, which is amazing. But really it was putting everything in one place, organizing all the research, all the ideas, linking them all together. There was a structured narrative there which basically outlined the trouble that we are in. It's almost like irrefutable what they wrote in there. And now I treat it very much like a Bible. That is your go-to for referencing what is actually going on. And I think for me, it was putting all those things together which made me go, wow i'm in a very fortunate position where i understand it and i know what's going on here and it motivated me more than anything to get out explore it a little bit more and more than anything explore what could the solutions be to stop this happening because it is shocking yeah and how did you get the idea to take a break from your studies and go on a two-year journey around the world <laughs> yeah a lot of people think it's quite a drastic thing to do but there was no almost eureka moment. It almost just kept building. I remember it was one of the first real things that I put on my Instagram story, my first bit of science where I went, oh my God, everyone has got to know about this. And the reaction I got was really amazing. I got so many messages, so many things from people wanting to learn more, wanting to understand what it was all about. And for me, I've grown up and my real love of conservation came from my ability to travel. I was very fortunate to travel a lot with my parents when I was younger to try and explore quite out the way and unique destinations. And so for me, it was natural 
to go on and explore this further and to show people the realities, which I learned a lot of people were very interested in, to go out there and start my world conservation journey. And so it slowly built and here we are today on my second year of it. Well, what kind of reactions did you get from other students or friends and family when you told them about your plan? Everyone was quite excited for me. They knew it was what I loved to do and knew travel and conservation was what I was all about. So managing to marry those together and to go out there and it not just being a sort of trip for nothing, it had a purpose, there was going to be an outcome, I was going to learn, I was going to try and celebrate these mavericks who were trying to save what they love. And I think it was all incredibly positive. Everyone thought, yeah, I was a complete nutter at times because what an undertaking it is but i feel this is the right thing to do i was sort of propelled into doing it after reading that ipis thing and i couldn't imagine doing anything else or spending my time doing anything else obviously traveling makes up a large proportion of the world's carbon emissions and since you're passionate about nature conservation we're sure you did not want to contribute to carbon emission by traveling yourself how did you plan your trip so that you wouldn't have too large of an impact it's such a hard one because Inevitably, traveling does come burdened with carbon emissions as soon as you step foot on a plane. But what you can do is you can start right from the beginning. And my whole planning process starts with thinking, right, how can I not fly as much as possible? And so it's doing really whatever I can, no matter how much it takes. Like I've just spent four of the last five days traveling by land down from western Tanzania through the most remote parts and it could have been super easy for me to just connect on a couple of flights but there's the sort of sustainability side of it and then there's also the real adventure and I get so much out of it and I think that's a lesson for people like we don't have to fly we do get so much more from traveling another way so there's that side, there's the transport. And I mean, being at home, I'm, I've got my car and I've got all that. And now I have no personal vehicle here. I'm riding in buses crammed like a tin of sardines. And then there's like the sort of side of it as well. Like what do I actually consume while I'm out here? Food wise, like I'm pretty vegetarian, vegan at home. But then I come out here and you sort of eat and do what you can to get by. And I've thought about it and a lot of what I eat, like, where does that come from? It's grown super locally. I have none of the food miles. And to sort of illustrate my food miles, I was having a couple of beers with some guys chatting about their work in conservation the other day. And someone brought a live chicken into the boozer. And that, and, and that was our dinner. So it's things like this. And then also living out of a backpack, you sort of learn, oh, I don't need to consume all of this. Everything gets reused. The t-shirt I'm wearing now, I took to someone to get sewed up because it was starting to fall apart. Like I'm living in a couple of small backpacks. And I think as far as a sustainable life go, low food miles, low consumption, they're things that are probably better on the road than they are even at home. So you started your trip in 2019 and made your way through Europe, Northern Asia and the Pacific Islands. And you were actually in touch with IPUS during your trip. How did they support you? It was fantastic being with the team at IPUS. And one of the biggest things I got out of that, alongside them sharing my stuff to a brand new audience, which was amazing, was that I, I got to meet up with several of their network of experts. I think that's the, that's the amazing thing about the sort of IPBIS group is that it's bringing 
some of the best minds in conservation and the surrounding fields all together to work on these amazing groundbreaking reports. So for me, they would link me up with people in each of the countries I'd go to and I'd just go and sit there and just chat to them and, and, and listen to them and learn so much more than I would do and meet people that I sort of wouldn't been able to off my own back. And I think that has massively increase my awareness of what conservation really means and what are the realities on the ground. Who, for example, have you met so far? I had an amazing time with Judith Fisher, who invited me over to Australia when I was in the Pacific Islands. And she sent me a very cryptic message. It was like, Billy, I've got something very special for you to experience with indigenous leaders. Because one of the most amazing things about the IPBIS report, and which I and a lot of people took from that as well, was how much weight they gave to indigenous knowledge and traditional knowledge. And that was strands I was starting to pick up during my time in the Pacific Islands, where I was seeing traditional ceremonies around food, bringing people and communities together with all of these sort of intrinsic conservation ethics. And so with an, for an opportunity for Judith to invite me over to Australia to come and see a meeting and learn from some Aboriginal people who are trying to protect what they love with all their amazing cosmology. It's experiences like these which are just unbelievable and so important I find to share to people as well and that's what I've been doing. Yeah, that sounds really great. Eight months into your trip though, COVID-19 made it impossible for you to continue your journey. And what was it like having to stop and go back home due to COVID? Were you impatient to go back on the on the road? I was. I was so ready to continue with that journey. I was so, so in the groove. I was moving really well. I was working really well. And then it all came to a halt. But looking back on it now, I find it quite serendipitous almost because it gave me some time at home just with my family to sit and reflect on what I'd learned during this time, which was so important. And also, I went back and finished off my final year of university. And it's almost the most perfect time to do that because I had nothing else to do but to work and study hard and learn. After finishing that year of university, it's opened my eyes so much more and I'm being so much more appreciative of what I see and understanding of what I see and thinking that I can delve deeper into these topics. So yeah, as annoying as it was having to break it, it's worked out quite nicely looking back on it. Did your conservation journey feature in your thesis? Yeah, so that was one of the main reasons university let me have the time off, which I'm incredibly grateful for. They sort of said when I presented it to them that they couldn't believe I wanted to do it and I could do it. And they're like, we haven't gone through any of this with anyone at the university before. And I'm like, trust me, it will work and it will be amazing. And so, yeah, I used quite a bit of what I learned as an ethnography to back up a lot of my other stuff in my dissertation. And obviously all the knowledge you pick up along the way goes massively towards writing everything else along the course. So now you're continuing your extraordinary trip. Have you noticed a difference between your conservation journey pre-COVID times and now? Yeah, I think generally for conservation, now is undoubtedly an incredibly hard time. For a lot of the projects I've been and visited, they've especially here in Africa, looking at gorilla conservation in Congo and chimpanzee conservation down in Tanzania. These are things which are very much reliant on tourist dollars. And you see that a lot, conservation having its main funding stream coming from tourists. And a lot of these parks have been left without any funding at all, which has made activities really hard, has made people almost lose their livelihoods there. But I've also had quite a dilemma with understanding because one of the sort of strands I've picked up while I've been out here 
that I've found a lot is that you can't separate conservation, climate change and sustainable development. Looking at grassroots, which is where I focus the most, you see that these are all interconnected and that they're all working together to sort of transition towards a sustainable society. And that's what I'm seeing at the moment, that it's no longer looking at conservation in a silo so much that it's just by itself, but instead it makes up a bigger purpose of creating a sustainable society, developing these communities. And for me, it was quite funny because I was trying to figure out, is this because of things that I've learned at university that has made me see these things sort of just now? Or is it the conservation landscapes changed? Or is it that it's just a geographical thing? I'm still trying to work that out, but I don't think it matters anyway, because it's still a really important finding. Yeah. Well, can you tell us a bit more about what you've been up to since you got back on the road? What have been some of the highlights? Yeah, so my first stop, I was blown away by what I saw in Lebanon, of all places, which has struggled massively over the years. And it's one of the places you, on paper, you would not expect them to have one of the best conservation projects that I've ever seen. And that's the Shouf Biosphere Reserve. And that was where I first sort of got that idea of the inseparability of climate change, biodiversity and sustainable development. And there it's a whole team dedicated to restoring this most amazing landscape. They've been building for 25 years. And now the amazing thing about it is that the outcome is that there's almost seems to be a race to the top in terms of conservation. It seems like the example that Shouf have set with their work and of developing their communities and restoring biodiversity has made so many other areas in Lebanon want to do the same. They've been envious of the conservation work that Shouf have been doing. And that's something that I haven't really seen before. So that was unbelievable. And then I spent some time in the Democratic Republic of Congo in a park called Kahuzi Biega National Park. This park historically has had a lot of issues. People have criticised it a lot because they basically kicked a load of indigenous people out of the park. And for human rights reasons, a lot of people weren't very happy about this. But now I've become absolutely amazed by the work of people whose family were then kicked out of the park. But instead of feeling sort of disenfranchised and disillusioned about it all, he's just gone, right, we have to try and solve this situation. And he is literally saving what he loves. And he is a true maverick in my eyes. And that's Dominique from Strong Roots Congo. So a big shout out to him and all the work that his organization's doing to try and save gorillas and try and actually provide livelihoods to the people who were, who were really struggling in those areas. You learn after seeing things like this, the problems that have gone on in conservation, that it's a continuously evolving journey of learning and going, right, that doesn't work. We thought that was right at the time, it's not, and let's keep moving. It's an iterative process of trying to find the best solution. You've mentioned some incredible examples of conservationists who are doing great work, but unfortunately you also encounter areas where conservation isn't working or there's just a lack of conservation. How do you stay optimistic when you see where things are going wrong? There are times where you go, why aren't things working? Why aren't things happening? But then you always find something that keeps you optimistic. Someone's efforts along there or just a conversation, someone's ideas, whether they're a, a ranger 
who has got really positive ideas about the future of conservation. People are still coming with ideas and more than ever what I'm seeing from organisations and people along my way is there are more and more people getting involved in conservation. And soon you expect there to be almost a, a tsunami of people getting involved and really changing things. And whether that be young people getting involved through education initiatives, people who were completely sort of unaware of these issues before, who are now through the work of conservationists through awareness programs of being like, okay, we understand now. And there are things like that which just make you go, oh, maybe things can change. Maybe that million species going extinct, which Ipbis predicted, may not come true. And I mean, you just have to hold to that because if you're not optimistic, then there's no reason to keep working. Uh, speaking of being optimistic, COP26 is taking place in your home country in just a few months. What are your hopes for this year's climate conference? Well, I mean, like everyone, I'm sure we want an incredibly positive and optimistic outcome from this conference. And we want more specifically some really realistic but meaningful nationally determined contributions from all countries. And especially countries like mine really stepping up to the plate here and going for broke, really. But as a conservationist and especially after seeing the amazing workshop report which came out from the IPCC and ITBIS, which basically said that we are not going to solve climate change or biodiversity loss by dealing with them separately. I really hope that there's something in there about the importance of nature for climate change and the importance of good nature-based solutions. So you will still be traveling when COP26 takes place. What are your plans after your trip? My plans after my trip is probably to continue trying to do this and whether I can scale it up. Because at the moment I'm a one-man band almost shouting from the front lines of conservation trying to celebrate these mavericks who are saving what they love. And I think there's some incredibly meaningful stories here to be told. And I think trying to find a way to get them to a bigger audience and produce better content is something that I'll look to be doing when I come back. But at the same time, I'm still learning and I'm still exploring. And if there are any opportunities that come up, I'm not turning anything down. I'm just going to see where this journey takes me, but always having that goal in mind. All right. Well, it has been great talking to you, Billy. Thank you so much for joining us on Inside You and Bon all the way from Zimbabwe. We wish you safe travels for the rest of your journey and that you meet many more fascinating conservationists. And also, we see you're being attacked by a bunch of flies. Earlier, our computer had a heat stroke. Thank you so much for pulling through. <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me, guys. It's been a pleasure to chat. If you would like to read the IPIS Global Assessment Report that inspired Billy's trip, you can find it on their website, which is ipis.net. And follow Billy Offland on Instagram to learn more about his conservation journey. Thank you for listening to Inside You and Bonn. The music is by Tim Moore and the design and visualizations of the podcast were done by me, Monja Sauvager. Thank you to the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their generous financial support in making this podcast happen. We will be back soon with more human stories from the people behind UN Bonn. To find out more about UN Bonn's 25th anniversary and the stories behind UN Bonn, please visit www.unbonn.org. On Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, We are at UN Bonn. Please take the time to review us because it does make a difference. Until next time.